Amen. All right. Well, we have a we have a lot to get through this morning. The title you can see from the screen of this morning's sermon is Grace from Beginning to End. Grace from Beginning to End. As you think about God's grace, we're of course not just talking about grace in general, we're talking about God's grace. And God's grace toward mankind represents one of the Bible's primary revelations and themes. As you're thinking about a theme we could track through the Bible, what God has revealed about himself from the beginning to the end even of the word of God, certainly the grace of God is on display. It's a theme that we could track from beginning to end. His gracious dealings with man repeatedly demonstrate both his character of love and his loving disposition toward man as, by, as graciousness is ultimately a byproduct of love. Grace is not something that you bestow on somebody else apart from having a concern for them, having a emotion toward them. And in the case of God, it's God is said to be God is love and God loves us. And so as God loves us, how does he show that or demonstrate that? Well, through gracious behavior towards us or interactions or provisions for us. So grace in and of itself is inseparable from love. It's, it's motivated or tied to that characteristic of God that he's loving. And then how is that love expressed? It's expressed through grace. Gracious dealings of all kinds with man as God undertakes to provide for man what he doesn't deserve but what he desperately needs apart from any human merit or human works. And so as we think about grace in general, that's what we're talking about. And perhaps no biblical character was more acutely aware of God's grace than Paul, as he refers to the grace of God 89 times in the 13 letters that he wrote. So you think, is that something that was important to Paul? Is that something that Paul had central to his thinking is an understanding of God's grace or the uh, focus on the importance of God's grace. And the answer is certainly that is true. And as we've been doing this series here, this series has been on the prayers of Paul. So this will represent our final lesson in this series and be praying about where we go from here. But this is the 34th lesson that we're looking at of various prayers that Paul has had. And we haven't hit every single one of them, but we've come close. We've looked at certainly a lot of them. And as you're thinking about those prayers, certainly what comes out in Paul's mentality is his understanding of grace, that the things God has done for us or the things even that he's praying that God would do for believers or undertake for their spiritual growth, their spiritual well-being, their spiritual thriving, generally his prayers are, have been focused on those kinds of things, that that's not going to be something that those individuals deserve, but it's going to be a byproduct of God's grace toward them as he sees himself as a trophy of God's grace and a product of God's grace. And he says things like, I am what I am by the grace of God. He's, he just gets done saying how effective he's been at promoting the gospel message to others. And then he follows that up by saying, but lest you would think that somehow it's of myself that this success is coming, be, be aware or, or know that I am what I am by the grace of God, meaning it's only God's grace, you know, and I don't remember the exact words of the song, but Lisa even had sent me a, a song a, a while back. I listened to it a hundred times probably, but I can't really think of it, all the words of it, but it's only by his grace, though, is sort of the title of that song, and what a great song. We are trophies of his grace, 
any success that we have is because of God's provision, God's love, and God's grace toward us. And so Paul writes about that over and over. He understood the central role of grace in every facet of his life from the beginning to the end. And that's why he begins and ends each of his 13 letters with references to God's grace. So you have 26 different references just in the beginning, beginnings and endings of these 13 letters of that 89 total. He begins and ends, and that's where our title comes from, Grace from Beginning to End, because he starts his letters with a reference to God's grace, and he ends his letters with a reference to God's grace. So the endings are presented as prayer blessings, and that's why this is the last lesson in our series of the prayers of Paul, is that the endings, when he mentions God's grace, they're always mentioned or presented as prayer blessings toward other people. And so that's why I decided to end the series with these. Now, before we get too far into that, we are actually going to look at all 26 of those references here this morning. There's going to be some page. There's going to be some page turning. So, if you're feeling a lot of stiffness in your fingers, maybe just stretch that a little bit while I touch a little bit on some of a, a more general overview of God's grace. Because if we're going to talk about grace from beginning to end, I know that there are perhaps some here who maybe don't have a general sense of what we're talking about when we're talking about God's grace. So the first thing we have to know about God's grace is that God's grace is undeserved. And I've already touched on this to some extent here this morning in some of my pre-sermons. And it was touched on in some of the songs that were sung. Donnie touched on it too. We don't deserve God's favor. So if grace is undeserved favor, God's undeserved favor towards man, a big part of that understanding though is that we can't have earned it. And as you think about it, that's why grace is often tied to and connected to the idea that God's grace is a gift. A gift, of course, is something that you can't work for. And too often, people proclaim that God's grace or God's love is a product of human works, that we earn God's favor through checking off boxes and making sure that we've made ourselves into something that God could honor, that God could respect, that God could accept. And as you think about that, that's not the message of the gospel. The message of, gos- of the gospel was that you, were absolutely had, you had absolutely nothing to offer God, that you were separated from God on account of your identification with sinfulness and a race of sinners, the race of Adam. And so the message of the Bible, if you're thinking about it, is even if you look at John 3, 16, if you say for God, you start there with having to understand what are we saying when we say for God. We, we would go right past that, for God so loved the world, but what do we also have to know about God? You see, of course, our verse ends with God, it, ends with li- it starts with God, it ends with life, but what about God do we have to know or recognize? Well, we have to know something about the character of God. And so as we're thinking about grace, God giving us something that we don't deserve, we have to see how different God is from us. And that's what makes it undeserved because we're not like God by nature. And so what is God like? A couple of things that we have to be aware of. He's holy. And because he's holy, he's without sin. And he can't remain perfect and perfectly holy if he is in contact with sin because that sin would actually taint his holiness. And so we know that about God. He's holy. So he's, holy means to be set apart from sin. So God is set apart from sin. We also know that God is righteous, meaning he's all right, all of the time. He's perfect righteousness. There's nothing about God that is wrong. There's nothing about God that could be identified with sinfulness because he's perfect. So we say he's perfectly righteous. 
And then the other thing about God, though, is we know that he's a just God, meaning he demands justice for violations or for iniquity. And so if you compare that to what the condition of man is, you'll see that there's a real problem. That's where God's love has to come into the picture. That's where God's grace has to come into the picture. Because what is, if, God, if the Bible declares those things about God, what does the Bible declare about man? Well, that all have sinned in Romans chapter 3, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That none are righteous, no, not one. That none seek after God. That all of our works of righteousness are filthy rags, that there's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not, that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Now we have a real problem here because if God is set apart from sin and holy, he can't be tainted by sin and man is each and every person, all men, the Bible says, are identified with brokenness, they're identified with failure, they're identified with sinfulness, they're identified with rejection and rebellion against him. Now there's this barrier, if you will, if you're picturing this, there's this barrier of sin that is separating mankind from a holy, righteous, and just God. And so as you're thinking about God's grace, it's undeserved, meaning God doesn't owe you his grace. If God gave you what you deserved, you would remain forever separated from God just like you were born into that condition. By birth, you were a sinner who chose sin, who chose rejection of of God, who chose rebellion against God. And you were then described rightfully, as all men are described, as God's enemy. Because you were resisting and combating the things that God said were right. So in that sense, you were in that place of separation from God. And the Bible says that the wages of that sin, the consequence of that sin, is death, meaning spiritual separation from God for all of eternity. So if God gave you what you deserved, you would get hell. You would get eternal separation from God. That is the destination of every person, every man, woman, and child on planet earth who doesn't have the Son. Remember, he who has the Son has life, but he who does not have the Son of God will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So as we're thinking about grace, this undeserved favor, man doesn't deserve heaven. Heaven is not a reward for good people. Heaven is a gift that God gives to those who do not deserve it apart from human effort, apart from good works, apart from human merit. And we see that in the rest of our verse here. For God so loved the world, that was his motivation, not our works, but his love that he gave. Gave is a word synonymous with what? A gift. If it's going to be a gift, it has to be freely given and it has to be freely received. There can't be works for it. He gave his only begotten son. His son, how did he give him? He gave him as the sacrifice or the innocent lamb of God, the substitutionary payment for man's sin. So he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth, how do you get in on this? You get in on this not by doing anything, but by believing in what the son of God has already done for you, motivated by God's great love for you. Whoever believes in him then will not perish. That's undeserved favor. God is saving those who were hopeless and helpless and hellbound until he made a way, until he rescued us, until he redeemed us from the bondage that we were in to the debt of sin. So whoever believes in him should not perish, but instead will have everlasting life. So it, again, it starts with God and it ends with life. How do we get a hold of that? Through believing in what Jesus Christ has already done. But you're saying, how does that have anything to do with grace? Think back to maybe what you know about grace. 
Think back to maybe what you've sung about grace without realizing what grace is really all about. God giving us something we don't deserve. It's unmerited. So what's the most famous song maybe in the entire world, but certainly the most famous song in Christendom? It's what? Amazing grace. What makes grace amazing? Is that it's not deserved. It's not merited. If if grace was just God giving us what we deserved, what would be scandalous about that? What would be amazing about that? Nothing. That's how everything works. You do your job and they give you a paycheck most of the time. <laughs> right? You study really hard and you do really well on the exam and they give you a good grade. Most of the time. You work really hard, put in all the effort, put in all of the practice, and you make the team. There's nothing exciting about that. There's nothing abnormal about that. What makes it amazing is that God is giving undeserving sinners something they don't deserve, which is life. Sinners deserve death, but God is giving them life. So amazing grace. Did you know what you were singing when you said that? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You know, Jesus says, I, I was not called to, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Repentance meaning to change your mind about what you were believing or what you were trusting in. He says, those that are well have no need of a physician, but those that are sick, do you see that you had a problem? You were a wretch. You know what? We have an easy time spotting other wretches in our life, don't we? It's the wretch in the mirror that's hard to spot. Because we always like to believe we're in a better place than we really are. We are so deceived. But saved, saved a wretch like me. Saved implies that there was a need, right? Saviors save people who are hopeless, people who are drowning. So he saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Now don't those words mean a lot more if you'd never thought about that? And it's all because it's talking about what? Grace. God giving us something we don't deserve and the natural temptation is to figure out some way to mix works with grace. Some way to insert our own personal checklist of things that we must do to deserve God's love, to deserve God's grace, to deserve God's compassion and kindness. And the Bible says there's nothing that you do. It's already been done for you. Will you accept by faith? Will you put your confidence in what I have already done for you? So we come back to grace being defined or God's grace. It's God's riches. Think of those letters. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's this idea of God doing something that he determined was best for us, regardless of whether we deserved it and regardless of how much it would cost him. 
God determining to do what is best for us, regardless of whether we deserved it and regardless of how much it cost him. That is grace. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about God's grace. And so that's one thing we have to know. We have to understand the very definition of grace. And the second thing we need to know about grace, if we're going to talk about grace from beginning to end, is that grace is limitless. God's grace is limitless. Now, mankind's grace is not limitless. Can people be gracious to one another? Yeah. Can the man who is walking by means of the Spirit, who is focused on Jesus Christ, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of his faith, if that person is motivated, led, and directed by the Spirit of God in his life, can he be gracious to people who don't deserve it? Does there tend to be limits to that? Yes, because we're not always in fellowship, are we? We're not always walking by means of the Spirit. So there tends to be limits where we say things like, Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? What is being asked in that question? Isn't there some limit? We talked about this at the youth retreat yesterday. Isn't there some limit to forgiveness? And Jesus, of course, says, he, he decides he wants to both teach them a spiritual principle and help them with their math. And so he says, how many times? He says, 70 times seven. Okay, some of the young people we had to work with, how you would do that in your head. Okay, the trick just so you know is you take the zero away and then add it back at the end. Okay, so it's seven, 70 times seven, or it's seven times seven, put the zero back in, Okay. And uh, I think that's right. I <laughs> can't be sure. Maybe all of them will fail their next math test because I was trying to help them. It's, it's limitless. With man, it's, it's limited. But with God, it's limitless grace. And so for some of you, you're like, where would you find that? Here's one example. People really struggle with this. Even people who profess to be Christians really struggle with this because they say you can't abuse the grace of God and still be saved and yet the very definition of grace is that it has to be capable of being abused or it's not grace. It's not grace if it's not capable of being abused. See, Paul understood that. And so when he saw that people might be tempted to do that, he told them, could this happen? The answer was yes, it could happen. He says, why would we do that? That doesn't make any sense. Why would we who have been freed from bondage to the flesh continue in it any longer? If we've been freed from the influence of sin in our lives, why would we do it? He doesn't appeal to it in the sense that it couldn't be done. He says, why would we? He says, God forbid that we would abuse God's grace in that way. But he, before he said that, he had to say this true principle about grace, that where sin abounded, grace abundant, abounded much more. Grace was always greater than all our sin. So grace is limitless. 1 Timothy 1.14, Paul says, and the grace of our Lord was what? Exceedingly abundant. Exceedingly abundant. Meaning it was just overflowing amounts of grace that God has. It was abundant. How was it shown? With faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That's how they're accessed through Christ Jesus. A third principle, just general overview about grace. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I want us to know what we're talking about when we're talking about God's grace. God's grace excludes works. 
and I've already touched on this a lot, so I'm just going to show you a couple more verses about it. Again, it's not grace if there's works attached to it. Romans 11:6 says this, and if by grace, and it is, he's saying if and it is, then it is no longer of works. You can't have it both ways. Otherwise what? Otherwise grace is no longer grace. Grace cannot be mixed with even one bit of human merit and still be grace. But it, if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise work is no longer work. The only way work can be work is if work stays separate from grace. The only way grace can be grace is if grace stays separate from works. Ephesians 2 and 8 and 9, again, very briefly we'll go through it. Donnie quoted this this morning, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of yourself. Grace is exclusive of human merit and human works. It is a gift of God. In case you were confused, it's not of works, lest anyone should boast. Grace is not earned. Grace is not merited. Grace excludes works. Now, does that mean that the child of God has no purpose? Does that mean God has no will for your life? Does that mean that you shouldn't live your life in a way that would please God? Does that mean that God is disinterested in how you would spend the resources and the blessings, and the t including the time that he's given to you? No. He's intensely interested in how you would spend the resources, including your time, that he's given you. He wants you to redeem the time. He created you to live in a way that would lift him up. He says, it says in the very next verse, verse 10, that you were created unto good works that were ordained beforehand that you should walk in them. But is that a condition of your salvation? No. If it was a condition of your salvation, that it wouldn't be grace anymore. But lest you go about saying, how I live my life doesn't matter, I'm just going to let it rip. I'm going to live for myself. Paul's not going to appeal to you to change your thinking on the basis of fear. He's not going to appeal to you to change your, your thinking on the basis of shame and guilt. He's going to appeal to you to change your thinking on the basis of logic and, and reason. He's going to say, why would we continue to do that? If we, if we see how much God loves us, wouldn't the only natural response to that be to love him? That's why John can say we love him because he first loved us. Paul can say the love of Christ compels and constrains me and motivates me. He says we judge thus that if one's died for all, then all died. That we who live should live no longer for ourselves, but for him who loved us and Gave himself for us. He doesn't appeal to you, though, to live a certain way out of a sense that you'll be kicked out of God's family, that you will lose your salvation, that you will be facing God's wrath. God's wrath is not directed toward his children. Does God chasten his children? Yes. Does God discipline his children? Yes. Are there consequences associated with our choices in time? Yes. Are there consequences associated with our choices in eternity? Yes. But God's disposition toward his children is only goodness all of the time. He's for us all of the time. He loves you all of the time. 
He's never against you. He's always for you. But part of that involves changing your thinking, changing the direction that you're going, making his vision your vision, conforming you through a transformative process, transforming you into the image of his son, refining you so as by fire, high heat, so that the impurities in your life can come to the surface so that they can be known. Just like David says, search me, O Lord. Find and identify if there's any hidden wickedness in me. Is there wickedness in us? Yeah, because the, the flesh, the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, Paul says, nothing good dwells. So in any event, that third principle was the grace of God excludes works. But it doesn't mean there isn't a place where God wants us to live for him and do his work, do the work of the ministry, fulfill the mission that he's given us. But we don't do it through our own strength and we don't do it because we're afraid of God. We don't do it because of shame and guilt. That's what religion tries to do. The fourth principle about God's grace is that God's grace impacts every facet of the Christian life. Now we're gonna get into the beginning and end parts of Paul's prayers here shortly, but the first facet of Christ, the Christian's life is salvation from sin's penalty. And here we see God's grace being said to be an integral part of this. For all have sinned in what? We, we spoke on this already this morning and fall short of the glory of God. That sounds like bad news. That sounds like a real predicament. If all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and if Romans 6.23 verse the A, the first part of that says the wages of sin is death, we got a real problem. But the verse doesn't end there. It says, but being justified freely... Because of works? No, it couldn't be free. Free. People have a problem with that. They, they call what I preached here this morning about the gospel message, they call it cheap grace. Cheap grace. There's nothing whatsoever cheap about it. It's free to you and I, but it cost God the death of his very own son, Jesus Christ. The debt that was paid for your sinfulness, you're the one human reason again, the one earthly reason, you're the one earthly reason. It was enormous, the debt that was paid, the cost that was invested in your freedom. It's just that you didn't pay it. It's insulting to try to describe grace as being cheap. It's in no sense cheap, but it is free to you. So you were justified, that word means to be declared judicially, to be in a right standing with God. You were identified with the unrighteousness of your sinful condition in Adam, but the moment of faith, the Bible says that you're made right with God as Jesus Christ's righteousness is credited to your delinquent bank account, so you can now be put judicially in a right standing with God. God can look at you through the lens of the work of His Son and the standing that you have in the, in the shoes, so to speak, of Jesus Christ being clothed in His righteousness and the Father can look at you and He can say, you are declared to be righteous before me. You are now in a right standing, not because of what you've done for God, but because of what God did for you. So we're justified, declared to be righteous freely by what? By what means? How hard we've tried? No, by His grace through the redemption. Redemption means being purchased out of 
slavery, being redeemed out of the sin slavery that we were in, that is in Jesus Christ. That was the means by it. Whom God set forth as what? A propitiation by his blood through faith. Now these are a bunch of big words. If you're new here this morning, come back next week. Okay, And then keep coming back. And eventually, these words, you'll understand them. But don't let the fact that some of this goes over your head stop you from learning about Jesus and his love. Propitiation means a satisfying payment, a satisfactory payment. So God set forth Jesus Christ as a satisfying payment for what? For the debt that all men owed because of their sinfulness. So a satisfying payment. What was the payment? By his blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Jesus Christ had to die so that you and I could live. That's the message of the gospel. Now, through faith, how is it accessed? By faith alone, I can't work for this. I put my trust in this. I accept this to be true. What an awesome summary of the gospel just right here in these verses. Now, what other facet of the Christian life does grace impact? Well, provision for living the Christian life. So not just how, do, how did I get saved from sin's penalty, but how does grace provide for me to live the Christian life? And here's a few verses that I want to talk about because God's grace, it also functions to influence or empower believers, not just to rescue believers from the penalty of their sin, but to influence and empower believers to have victory over sin in their daily lives. And so here's a few verses that we, we need to pick up the pace, but here's one. For I am the least of the apostles. Now, Paul started out by saying this, I'm the least of the apostles. Then he said, I'm the least of the saints, about a year after this, in another letter he wrote. And then at the end of his life, he said what? I'm the chief sinner. So just interesting food for thought. But here, he's at a place where he's still humble, but he gets even more humble as he goes through his Christian life. He gets to the point where he says, Christ... I declare this to you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I am numero uno. I am, that's Spanish for one. I'm numero uno. Um, my kids are learning Spanish. Sorry, I couldn't resist. I'm the chief. I'm the captain of the sinners. That's, that's, that's humility there. Anyway, I'm the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because what was my life like before I knew Christ? I persecuted the church of God. He stood by while the first Christian martyr, Stephen, was stoned to death. Paul was there, authorizing it to happen. He dragged women and children, he dragged people out of their homes to be persecuted, to be put to death. That's what Paul did before he came to know the Lord. That's why those who say that there's limits to God's grace, well, a murderer could never go to heaven. They don't understand the gospel at all, and they've never read the Bible. Because they would they'd have no way to deal with people like Moses. They'd have no way to deal with people like David. They'd have no way to deal with people like you and I, who Jesus says we're guilty of murder if we've ever hated somebody in our heart. See, the truth is then we have a world full of murderers, if that's the definition in any event. He says, I'm not worthy because this was my past. He still felt bad about it. But, he says, that's a very important word, by the grace of God... I am what I am. It's the grace of God that is making this life in Christ possible. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. You see, it's not just something where you think about it as undeserved favor from God. 
Undeserved merit is a, it's a cute definition of grace, but it doesn't encapsulate the full amount of what we're talking about or the measure of what we're talking about when we're talking about grace. It's not just unmerited favor as it relates to justification or being freed from the penalty of sin. It's this continuous favorous, tr- favorable treatment that God has that is undeserved in our life as he provides and makes it possible for the power of his spirit for us to live a life of godliness, to be partakers of the divine nature as we're blessed with all of those spiritual blessings. And so that's what Paul is sort of getting at here in terms of provision, this gracious provision for living the Christian life. I'm going to skip across a few more verses here. Sorry if you wanted to see them. You're going to have to come talk to me about them afterwards. There was other examples, but I want us to keep moving. Now the last part of this facet, the last facet of the Christian's life that grace is impacting is partial present and complete future glorification. Partial present and complete future glorification. That's by God's grace too. We see it here, therefore having been, that happened in the past, justified. What did we say that meant? Declared, judicially declared to be in a right standing with God. To be righteous on the basis of the imputed righteousness of Christ. So we've been justified how again? By faith. Over and over and over and over, faith and believing are held up as the only two ways a person could access the grace of God, the gracious provision of God through faith. It's not through works. It's faith apart from works. Now, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. He's not talking about the peace of God. He's, he's saying we're free. All hostilities have ended in the sense that we're now at peace with God because the problem of our sin has been dealt with through the imputed righteousness of Christ being placed on our account so that we're in good standing with God. Now, through what was the means of this? The sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ is what he's talking about here. Now, through whom... Also, we have, now in the present, we have access by faith, continuing faith. We live the Christian life the same way we got saved, by trusting God. Trusting God and tapping into this ongoing grace in which we stand presently. And we rejoice. Now we're looking forward here. This is the future part of this. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which is also going to be by God's grace. He's talking about a future hope there. In the glory, when, the glor- when we're finally going to be glorified in the future, when we're going to be made to be free from sin itself, where we're going to be given glorified bodies one day. We rejoice in a hope, a confident expectation that that's what we have to look forward to. All three tenses of salvation are being dealt with here, and they're all connected to what? God's grace. So I'm going to skip two more passages there. So now let's get into our page turning. Who's ready? Fingers loose? All right, let's get going. Grace to you is how he starts every one of his letters. Turn to Romans chapter 1. We want verse 7. Now, the good thing is we're largely going to be going in order. So if you can get to Romans, then you're just going to keep page into the right, okay? Romans 1, verse 7. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, now here's his greeting. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you. Now, each one of these is going to include grace to you. Most of them are going to include peace, but we're focused on grace. And just for the record, you can't have 
you can't have peace with God until you first have God's grace. You've appropriated God's gracious provision for your sinfulness on Calvary. So grace always comes first. Peace always comes second. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 3. Man, what a beautiful sound, huh? Sound of pages turning in Bibles. All right, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Almost an identical greeting. Grace to you, though. Grace to you. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Almost identical. What you're going to see here is that this is, becomes a sort of standard greeting that people of faith exchange with one another. We'll touch on it a little bit more in a second. But grace to you. Now we need Galatians chapter 1, verse 3. So if you're going through these, we've got Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, then Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. That's the order of Paul's letters. And you could learn that if you just spent enough time with it. Galatians chapter 1, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to spoil it for you. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians' greeting is identical. So far all of these have been identical. And we're focused on grace to you. Always accompanied then by peace, and it's always from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2 of chapter 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep turning to Philippians chapter 1 verse 2. And guess what? It's going to say the same thing. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 2. We'll skip to the B part of the verse because the first one is just saying who he's writing to. It's the people who are believers in Colossae. Part back part of the verse. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I will say this. Uh, each one of those references to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ speak to the divinity of Jesus Christ. He's a part of the triune Godhead. Grace is not coming from just the Father, Every aspect of the triune Godhead, of course, is a source of the grace of God generally because the Godhead is broken into three distinct persons but one complete God. So that's just a passing comment. All right, so now we're Colossians 1. Oh, we read that already. Grace. So now we need 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 1. The back part of verse 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, identical. Each one of these has been identical so far. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Here's one nuance. 
it's very similar, but we add the word mercy. 1 verse 2b, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have, instead of Lord Jesus Christ, we have Jesus Christ our Lord, but the Father and Jesus Christ are both said to be participating or the source of where this grace is coming from. And it's grace, mercy, and peace. And so we have three descriptions there, but we have grace to you again, grace to you. Now we have 2 Timothy 1, verse 2. Again, we have grace, mercy, and peace. Some have argued that because he's writing to a, his, a young pastor, that that's why he includes mercy. You're going to need this. But grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Same idea as we had in 1 Timothy verse chapter 1. Now, Titus 1 To Titus, a true son in our common faith. Now what does he say? Here again, another pastoral epistle. So we have grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this one, he adds the nuance of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Just a neat little variation there. Now finish with the last letter, Philemon. And then Philemon, we'll see verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes back to what we had seen in all the other epistles other than the letters to the pastors, Timothy and Titus. So as you look at that, grace to you. Now, a couple things about it. Grace was a greeting common in the Greco-Roman world, so this isn't unique to God's grace. So it's actually incorporated in this greeting. And peace was a traditional Jewish greeting. And so grace and peace are put together as a way of greeting in terms that they would recognize both the Gentile aspects of the church and the Jewish aspects of the church. That's, so on one hand, there's grace to you. It's just a traditional greeting. There'd be nothing more to it if it didn't have the words after it that said, from our, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So they're, they're trying to play into that. And it became a traditional Christian greeting to put those two things together. Now, there's more to the greeting than that, though. It identifies that grace is directed at you. So grace to you, it's coming your way. It serves as a reminder of God's past provision of grace, but it also refers to something coming your way in the future. It, be, it goes beyond just a reflection on God's great past acts of grace toward you, and it refers to this ongoing nature of grace that is coming your way. Grace is coming to you, is the idea. And you think about even Jesus talking about grace upon grace. There's the idea. It's, it's, it's grace that keeps building, it keeps flowing, it keeps continuing. So the grace which, God, which Paul prays will be theirs is grace for daily living. That's what he's talking about, grace to you, ongoing grace to you that will empower and make it possible for you to live for Jesus Christ, provided through the ministry primarily of the Holy Spirit. Now, it reminds these believers of God's care and provision of them. What a nice way to greet each other. Grace to you. God's grace is coming your way. It's also a reminder at the same time, God's grace has been available to you and has, has functioned in your life previously, but it's still coming your way and it's going to be available for what's in front of you. Now this is the thing to really pull from this is where is this grace sourced? 
And these, every single one of them reminds the audience of the greeting that's receiving the greeting that this grace isn't sourced in self or sourced in the world. It's from what? From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It reminds believers that grace is provided freely. It's not earned. It's not grace from, uh, in exchange for your faithfulness. It's grace from God, and God's grace is always undeserved. It's always has no regard for how much it costs. It's not something that's reciprocal. It's a one-way street of God pouring his grace out on his children. And this also might be a reference to the teaching itself as further testimony, teaching, or explanation regarding God's grace. So grace is coming to you in the form of, I'm writing you some more truths about who God is, some more revelation about who God is. And I think that is a part of it because if you looked at Acts chapter 14, verse 3, it says this, Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace. See, the message that's being declared from the apostolic teaching is a message of God's grace. It's, it's a delivery form of expounding on, expanding on, the grace of God. It's said again in Acts 20, 32, so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. See, grace to you, here's some more word, some of the more of the word of God that is being communicated to you through this letter. That's a potential part of it. Now let's, let's finish with the, that's the beginnings, grace to you, but the endings are all slightly different. Every letter ends with grace be with you. So grace to you and now grace be with you well, why don't we just go backwards, I guess. Let's start in Philemon 25. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. There's one. Titus 3, 15. We're just backing up to our left now. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith, but here we have it. Grace be with you all. Amen. Now we'll look at Tim, 2 Timothy 4, verse 22. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, but then what's the prayer here? Grace be with you. Amen. Go to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, uh, 21. Grace be with you, amen, is the last sentence of that verse. Grace be with you, amen. 2 Thessalonians 3, keep going left, 3.18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, Amen. 1 Thessalonians 5, 28. Last verse of this book. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Again, Colossians 4, 18. This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains. Now what's the last line? Grace be with you. Amen. Philippians chapter 4, verse 23. 
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Ephesians 6.24. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. So grace be with you. Then we get to Galatians 6, 18. Brethren, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. We get to 2 Corinthians 13. Verse 14. Last verse of the book. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and now he includes, and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit. There we have all three parts of the Trinity, a very Trinitarian verse there. What does it say, though? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Verse 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ. Amen. A little bit of a variation, but still the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Be with you. And now we have the last one, Romans 16, verse 24. And just like so many of the rest of them, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So grace be with you. We had all of those grace to you as the, the beginning of these letters, and now we have all of these grace be with you. And it's always stated as a prayer of blessing. Some people say it, they call them a benediction, but it's really just a prayer of blessing. They all end with amen. May it be so is what amen means. May it be so. May it be as it was just said, I guess. May it be so. So Paul recognized that the grace of Jesus because most of them say Jesus Christ is absolutely essential in the ongoing life of the believer. It was provided by Jesus. It was provided by faith in the Son of God. It's absolutely essential in the ongoing life of the believer. So the idea I think he's communicating is this represents my hope and desire for you. These are his prayers to end these letters is grace to, to you. I greet you by reminding you of the grace of God that you have had and that is coming your way both in terms of its ongoing effect on your life and provision in your life but also in terms of this revelation that's coming in terms of additional teaching. But then he ends by saying the grace of God be with you. It represents my hope and desire for you. And the question is, but isn't God's grace already with every believer? So could he be speaking to that? That he's praying that God's grace would be with believers whereas it might not be with them. And the answer is no, I don't think he's really speaking to that. I think the, the phrase focuses on the future appropriation of the grace of God that already is available. God's grace is available God's goodness, God desires to bless his children and God wants to pour out his blessings and his, he wants his children to utilize his resources and his provision for them living a life of godliness. But God doesn't force believers to do that. So when Paul's prayer here is really the grace of God be with you, appropriate it, take advantage of it, live in light of it, rest in it is sort of the idea here. And so Paul's really praying that God's grace would continue its work 
in the believer's life because the believer would be sensitive to trusting the Lord, enjoying the Lord, walking in dependence on the Lord so that the grace of God would truly be with us in a practical application. It would be something manifest in the believer's life. The idea is that grace enables and equips the continuing and maturing walk of faith. So grace be with you as you walk in faith, which may or may not be true, but as you do that, it's God's grace that's going to enable and equip you to live a life of godliness, a life that would please Him. So grace to you, again, now reminds believers of past grace and communicates an expectation that future grace would be directed the believer's way. It's like a statement of fact. This is going to happen. This is available. But grace be with you gives us a little twist on that. It communicates Paul's desire that the believers would access and appropriate the grace of God in their ongoing Christian lives. Now we had to end kind of quickly on that. But you think about what a prayer to end with. The grace of God be with you. Amen. May it be so. May, may it be with you in, in a real personal, experiential, practical kind of a way. May God's grace be with you in that sense where you're utilizing it, you're appropriating, you're availing yourself of the resources that God is presenting you with in your life. And if he prays that at the end of every single of these 13 letters, maybe it's something that's important to think about. Maybe it's something that's important to be reminded about. So grace from beginning to end, do you recognize the central role of grace in every facet of your life? Do you recognize that? And some days, probably you do. In other days, maybe you don't. Good reminder here this morning, though. Do you realize the past and future provision of God's grace in your life? Do you realize that it's even available? And then the question really is, as we think about the prayer part of this, which is the endings here, will God's grace be with you? in the sense of you personally appropriating and living in light of the grace that's available to you. Will that be true of you? And then the last question I would ask is, are you praying that would be true in your life? Are you praying that it would be true in the lives of others? Because that's Paul, how Paul is ending with these prayer blessings to every one of these groups of believers that he's writing to, all 13, well, three individuals, but the groups of people, other 10 churches, He's saying, may this be true in all of your lives. That's his prayer to God. Amen. Is that our prayer? It should be. I think that's a fitting way to end this series. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend in your word. Thank you that we could even be looking at all these different prayers of the Apostle Paul. Pray that grace would be with us in the sense that it would be practically manifest in our lives as we would appropriate by faith the resources and provisions that you've, meant, you've made for our spiritual success and growth. Pray that we would see that apart from you we can do nothing, that if we don't connect, stay connected to your resources, to your provision, that we are going to be absolutely hopeless, that it's going to be a train wreck. Pray that we would see that we need to stay close to you, depend on you, draw nearer to you, to seek to, seek to have that fellowship, that intimate fellowship and enjoyment of a relationship with you that includes you in our life and doesn't try to go through life apart from you, but allows you to be a part of our lives in Jesus' name.